Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see y'all here this morning. Thankful to be here. Hope y'all had a great week. Hope the Lord has been blessing you and helping you and working through your lives to be a strong and godly testimony to others. That's who we are as Christians. Turn your Bibles, if you would, this morning, please, to Romans chapter 11. As we continue our journey through Romans. We'll be reading in uh, chapter 11, the first six verses this morning. Starting in verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we draw close to you, Lord, through the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you this morning that you have granted us the doorway to the throne of grace through your Son. Lord, would you help us today? Would you help us to kill our pride? Would you remove any obstacle this morning that would keep us from hearing what you would have to say to us this morning? that would keep us from clinging to Christ, that would keep us from worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we love you and we exalt you. And we thank you for saving us, Lord. Let us not take it for granted. Let us not take the precious spilled blood of our Savior for granted, Lord. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for using us, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have the scriptures. Thank you that we have the body of Christ. Thank you that we have a a local assembly, Lord. Thank you for these gifts, Lord. We are eternally grateful. Be glorified this morning, Lord. Be glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I would like to focus on three key points this morning from our text. And these three points address the issues that I believe Paul is putting forward in these six beginning verses. These three points can be summed up with actually two statements. Statements which would read, knowing God and knowing yourself. But I'd like to add a third one there in which we will see in these verses is knowing the gospel. Knowing God, knowing ourselves, and knowing the gospel. You see, it's it's extremely important that we as the people of God have a right view of God. Because the right view of God, our view of God, let's just put it this way, our view of God determines everything 
that we do. How we define things, how we look to things, how we judge things. And most importantly, in our worship. John Calvin says this, he says, The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are bound together by a mutual tie. But we must treat of the former in the first place and then descend to the latter. He goes on to say, Men never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. A.W. Pink put it this way, as we turn to God's word and are instructed throughout, we discover a fundamental principle which must be applied to every problem. Instead of beginning with man and his world and working back to God, we must begin with God and work down to man. In the beginning, God. Apply this principle to the present situation. Begin with the world as it is today and try to work back to God. And everything will seem to show that God has no connection with the world at all. But begin with God and work down to the world and light, much light, is cast upon the problem. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The only way to understand yourself or your life is to start with God. And right at that very beginning, the Bible takes us there. And if you are not clear about this, you will be wrong everywhere else. Paul, in his opening verse, confronts the idea of a false view of God's dealing with his people. This whole idea is demonstrated here. Obviously, we're only reading six small verses, but the entirety of the uh, message uh, or or the the, the whole book of Romans deals with this whole point of, of having a false view of justification. Really, ultimately, if you have a false view of justification, of God's dealing with men through Jesus Christ, you have a false view of God. And even though you may want to call a particular person, uh, say that they, they have a love for God, but yet they don't love Christ, they're not a Christian, their love, in, in essence, is false. And this is what Paul, I think, is dealing with here in Romans 11.1, 1, where he says this, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For also am I an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. We must understand uh, the language that Paul is using here when he uses the word cast away. Or what the original language would illustrate would be literally a pushing away of, we would say, God's people. It means to thrust. It means to drive out. So the question then is this. Has God thrust off Israel? Has he driven them eternally from them? And Paul says with a resounding, certainly not. As a matter of fact, if we go a few verses earlier in chapter 10, verse 21, we read this. But to Israel, he said all day long, I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Here we have an illustration and a picture of God not pushing away his people, not casting away his people, not necessarily damning his people or forgetting about his people, but you have this view of God where he's saying all day long, I have reached out to you. I have stretched forth my hands. We can see this also as a type of a type of Christ when he's when he is when he is laid upon the cross. We see that his hands were wide open. They weren't in this fashion. They were wide open to the people. Jesus said, "All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out." And this is the picture we have of a loving Father stretching forth his hands repeatedly throughout the Bible. 
From the moment we see even in Genesis with the slaying of an animal, we see Adam and Eve clothed in animal skins as a type of Christ. We see the picture of Cain and Abel where one brings the wrong offering, one brings the shed blood of an animal as accepted in the eyes of God. We see Abraham as he brought Isaac to the altar. We see this as a type of Christ throughout Scripture. We know in Scripture through the Bible from the very beginning all the way up until we reach the New Testament The Lord was preaching the gospel through His prophets, through His people. The word had gone out to the people throughout history. It is there. In Romans 10, 19, Paul says, But I say, did not Israel know? First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. And God is dealing with His people. He's showing them, he's provoking them to anger. How? By doing the most vile thing imaginable. And that is accepting pagan nations to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul says, certainly not are God's people cast away. We have to look at this as well as Paul looked at it when, when, when we, we see the, the foreknowledge of God. Paul says, certainly not. And how, I mean, what is, what is the premise by which Paul not necessarily lays out this complaint, but lays out this rebuttal? What provokes Paul to say certainly not with an explanation point, as if he's shouting back saying certainly not because Written before their eyes, illustrated over the pages of Scripture, God-breathed Scripture, you have Paul himself, who he says is an Israelite. Paul is showing them, listen, if God has forsaken Israel, if he has cast us off, if he's rejected us, if he's shoved us away, then why am I standing here converted, proclaiming this message to you now? This is how he's dealing with it. He says, you want evidence that God has not forsaken his people? I'm the very evidence personified before you today. Paul is showing them that they are most certainly not cast away because he himself is an Israelite in which he calls to let them know that their understanding would be dialed into the seed of Abraham. And we understand that the seed of Abraham throughout the word of God, anytime dealing with the seed of Abraham is really dealing with God's promise to Abraham, but also a promise to Abraham's seed. They would have understood this. Paul basically was declaring Romans 4.3 to them. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. This is the message that Paul was preaching to the people. We obviously have a the dealings here is, is he's dealing with national Israel and we're dealing with obviously spiritual Israel. We see two sides of the same coin. It is, it is, is God just in these verses, is he just dealing with the spiritual element of his people, just his elect, in which he says he had the foreknowledge of knowing who would be his as he's gathering a people unto himself. From, from every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue, God was building His Son a bride from all people groups. But does this mean, we have to ask ourselves this question this morning, does this ultimately mean that God is through with national Israel? And I think if we continue reading through Romans 11, we'll see that the answer would be no. That God still has dealings with the nation of Israel at some level. But I really want to deal with uh, the, the whole idea that wraps around uh, these six verses today. Because as we continue through Romans on next week and the following, we'll be able to really um, unpack um, the latter, which really deals with um, both sides, Jews and Gentiles, all becoming one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul here is saying, by dealing with the seed of Abraham, he's telling them, listen... This whole justification by faith, the word of God here, in which is spoken in Romans 4, 3, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. He's saying, basically, this is my genealogy. We can go through all the names 
the family members and go all the way down and boil it down and see where I came from and see what stock I am from. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when it's dealing with eternity, the only thing that really matters is that my genealogy is connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 11-13, Paul has said, And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know, Paul is clearly demonstrating to his people that he's an Israelite, but not in the sense of where I'm just going to brag that I'm from the stock of Israel nationally or by birth. He's not claiming that. He's not throwing it on the table, but he's letting them know, listen, I'm just like you, but I am part of the elect and who's been chosen before the foundations of the world to be a part of God's family through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this, this morning, should be something that we ourselves as the body of Christ take for a moment and just reflect on this reality. This reality of your own personal walk and life with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we can, we, we can get ourselves sometimes in, in situations, even... even myself personally, where I'm wondering at times, and, and where is God in all of this? Where's the power of God? Where's all the conversions? You know, I read about the Great Awakenings. I read about the Reformation. I read about these times where God moved in power. I read through the Bible and I see things where God moves upon people and changes and transforms people and cultures and societies and states and nations where God is moving. And sometimes when I see the darkness that pervades over our country and I see the, the condition of the church in our country, sometimes it causes me to lose my breath and ask myself, God, where is the power? Lord, as the people of God, we have to stop for just a moment and reflect on the reality of our own conversion as evidence that God still changes lives. You know, you can look around and you get real disappointed sometimes at the things that are going on in this world. But you ever just take a moment and say, listen, those people that are bothering you, those people that are vile and wicked, do you realize that you were just exactly like them and God saved you? And that you are the evidence that God still transforms souls? That God still saves? That God still visits people? in his own power, in his own sovereignty, and still changes people the same way that he has from the very beginning of time, God still saves people. So before we lose heart, we look around, and we see the devastation that lies all around us. Just for a moment, stop for a moment and say, God can save them. How do I know this? Well, first we know it's because God is true. He's not a liar. But the reality is that he saved me. The most vile, disgusting slob of all. That God can save a radical wreck like myself and then on top of that use me for his glory gives me great confidence to continue to preach the gospel to other people. This is a healthy knowledge of ourselves. When Paul says, and such were some of you, that we would have a healthy knowledge of the inward man, where you are today. But the only way you're going to get a healthy knowledge of self is to understand and have a healthy knowledge of the true living God. This is how we dissect ourselves. Not by ourselves. Not by our own reasoning. And as the, as the, the, the word says that it's foolish to compare ourselves with others. That's not your standard. The ultimate standard is God and His Word. And this gives us an idea of who we are and where we stand with God. This morning I would appeal to you if if you don't know the God of Scripture, that you haven't come to Him in humble repentance, if you haven't come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, then I would appeal to you to do that this morning. To come and to know God. Because otherwise you're going to have a false view of yourself and you're going to think you're okay. Because what sinful man does He justifies his behavior. He minimizes sin. And he creates an idol of himself. And this must die. Jesus said all who come after me must must deny themselves. 
take up their cross. They must die and follow me. We must know God. We must have a healthy knowledge of God. In verse 2, Paul says, Or do you not know what the Scripture says? Do you not know what the Scriptures say of Elijah? In other words, he's saying, Have you not heard? And I think the simplest way to explain this, when he brings up, he name drops Elijah, he's identifying with Elijah for many reasons. And I think the reason why the typology here of Elijah's ministry and life, Paul can identify with. The time of Elijah was actually, as history points out, one of the darkest periods of Israel's history. This will give you kind of a clue in where Paul's coming from. It seems as the whole nation had apostatized from God. Elijah had this conception when he complained in his despondency when he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Here Paul is, 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 is clearly, you know, you have to ask yourself this question. You have to ask yourself, why Elijah? Why out of all the stories throughout the Old Testament did Paul go to the story of Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel? Why was he using this illustration now? when dealing with his proclamation in Scripture <clears throat> to Israel, in dealing with Israel. I think Paul himself could identify with the despondency of Elijah in the sense of God's people. you got to remember, Paul, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he died in either A.D. 62 or 67, and then we know that the temple came down, what, in AD 70, the old world was destroyed three years after, really after Paul's death. So you can only imagine the apostasy and the darkness and the things that were going on at the time Paul was penning these things. What was going on in his mind, why he pointed back to Elijah, how he could understand Elijah's battle for truth and what he come up against, and what he was fighting against, and how he dealt with the evilness that pervaded his culture in his time. Elijah basically was one man against the world. At least it felt this way. At least it felt this way to him. Do you ever feel that at times, that you feel like, man, I, I feel like I'm, I'm all alone? I mean, he says this here redundantly. In Romans 1, 3, he says, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And then what he says to God is pleading to God, if they kill me, there's going to be nobody left. And this is, the, this is the worldview that was tacked on to Elijah's mindset, showing, therefore, that his definition of God and the word of God was distorted. over here. Thank you. That he was, he, he had this mindset, Lord, I'm all alone. And, and, and at times, each and every one of us can go through that. Those moments where you feel like you look around in the world, as we all do, we all watch the news, we've all seen the videos, and there's moments that if you want to be honest, there's, there's despair. And it's just like, does anybody care about the things of God anymore? Does anybody care about the word? Does anybody care about what pleases God and what God says about this situation, about our culture, about the things that are going on? And we, be, we, can, we can actually, if we're not careful, be subject to, to bringing God down to our own level and taking on a false view of God. Thinking that you're the only one and if they throw you in prison, then there's going to be nobody here to save the world, right? 
But the reality is it was just the opposite because God always wins and God has won. And he says this in the word. He says, then Elijah said, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. And it goes on to say, Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And then he says in verse 22, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. And the only way we're really going to get an understanding of what Paul is trying to communicate to his audience is to understand who Elijah was and what he dealt with. Because this is what Paul is saying. Paul is dealing with. Paul is using uh, Elijah as an illustration. It would be foolish to try to understand what's being said here without really understanding what happened in the days of Elijah, the battle. Ahab and Jezebel, at this time of uh, Elijah's whole event, were the most wicked and evil rulers Israel had ever known. They employed 850 prophets of Baal and his consort Asherah and were killing the prophets of Yahweh. After Elijah had told Ahab there would be no rain for years to come, and not until I say so, they were determined to kill him. When Ahab married Jezebel, he created an unholy alliance with the king of Sidon, Jezebel's father. Her country worshipped Baal and Asherah, and Israel was beginning to do exactly the same. If you study history and you study um, the life of Jezebel and, and Ahab and, and where they came from and how they functioned and why really Jezebel, you know, is a name that no one would ever name their daughters because she's always been connected with rebellion, promiscuity, perversion, egalitarianism, usurp in her husband's role and power hungry and power committed and, and pagan. And we see all these things. So, I mean, it's, to her life was so vile that she was even used by our Lord in the book of Revelation. So we know that this lifestyle um, that was going on between Ahab and Jezebel really was a Jezebel-motivated marriage. She called the shots. As a matter of fact, you think about it, Ahab... He was really a king of Israel, not a good one. As a matter of fact, he was apparently the most vile king that Israel ever produced. But the reality is, is that he had a, a, a commitment to the worship of the true and living God. And his wife Jezebel was a worshiper of Baal. But she is the one who influenced her husband Ahab, to literally set up an altar, check this out, right in the very heart of Jerusalem. Right in the heart of Jerusalem, he sets up an altar to a false and pagan God. She's the one that went ahead and and took Naboth's property and had him stoned and killed. Yeah, he was the king, and in all reality, you should never take something that doesn't belong to you. But if he's the king, if he's the man, then he should have been able to go and take that from Naboth if he truly wanted it. But instead he couldn't. He came home and he cried on the bed because Naboth said no. So his wife, who basically wore the pants in the family, went there and took care of business, had him killed, had him sacked, took his property, and gave it to Ahab. You get an idea kind of how the relationship was going. And how they functioned and how ungodly this union actually was in the time of Elijah's reign. During the third year of the drought, Yahweh told Elijah it was time to go home. He was to show himself to Ahab, even though Ahab had been looking everywhere far and wide to kill him. Elijah was going to tell Ahab that rain was about to fall. And as a matter of fact, the rain, as you know, was three years of judgment, which brought about a famine upon the land. And the rain itself wasn't coming until God made himself known. 
that he is the God above all. Until he was justified, it wasn't going to rain. The famine from the drought was, drought was so severe that King Ahab was looking everywhere for grass to feed his horses and mules. If those animals all died, his army would be powerless against their enemies. Elijah sent word to the king that he needed to see him face to face. Elijah challenged Ahab at their meeting to bring all the Israelites and all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. There'd be a total of 850 of them to Mount Carmel. He alone would represent Yahweh there as his name meant Yah is God. On Mount Carmel, he asked all the people, how long will you waver between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And at this moment, we hear a pin drop. No one said a thing. And we know ultimately, we know the battle of Elijah. We know how he, how he conquered that day. And God brought fire down from heaven. It said in 1 Kings 18.38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. God overcame. God showed up by fire. And it's interesting because at that point, um, Elijah had all of these false prophets massacred and slaughtered. We know that the, the word of God says that it was the prophets of Baal but reality is, some translations read that he annihilated all 850 of them. Just gives you some idea of how God views idolatry. How God views witchcraft. And how God views pagan worship. In the sense where there was much bloodshed because the law demanded it. And in 1 Kings 19.14, after Elijah has literally run from his life, now that Jezebel is very uh, upset that, that uh, Elijah has killed all of her prophets, but the reality is I don't think she really cared about the deaths of the prophets as much as she did that she had been defeated. She had risen up and she had, she had threatened him so much so it says that in the scriptures that Elijah had kneeled down in prayer uh, you know, it said that, you know, it seemed to indicate that he was severely mentally distraught and he struggled with a very deep and dark, depressive moment of his life. And it goes on to say that he ran, as a matter of fact, to the Mount of God. He actually ended up on Mount Sinai, where this is where his complaint came. It's interesting uh, to know that he ended up at Mount Sinai. And if you, if you study Paul's journeys in Galatians and in the book of Acts, you'll also find that Paul, actually Paul had um, followed uh, Elijah's exact track. So not only does Paul understand the apostasy of the nation, the apostasy of the people, the paganism, and, and, and just the, 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 the vile behavior of these supposedly godly people, but also he would understand physically as he had made that trek, he would have understood the journey of Elijah as well. And he himself, Paul, even at one point ended up at um, Mount Sinai. So here we have a picture of Elijah calling out to God and he says, I have been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have torn down your altars and they put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord's reply to Elijah is this. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. But what does the divine response say to him? In Romans 1.4, he reflects this exact same thought in letting him know that Elijah, you're not alone. Paul, you're not alone. The people of God in whom the scriptures go out to us today, we have to understand that when we look at a world 
uh, even the Christian world, the people that call themselves the people of God, it seems like they're all apostatizing. It seems like they're all leaving the faith. It seems like many are crashing and burning. And to such extent, we start crying out like Elijah, thinking that we're all alone. We're all alone in this battle. But God says, no, you are absolutely wrong. Let me encourage you. There are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed him. Which Paul is trying to illustrate to the people in context of what he's writing about Israel and the remnant that will ultimately be saved. Paul says in verse 5, Romans eleven five. 5, he says, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. What he's saying is don't fear. What the world may look like all around you as it crumbles and it falls and deteriorates. Just know this, that there's always a remnant and there always will be a remnant until the day that Christ returns. We can take comfort in that. We know no matter how bad things look, there is always a remnant. There's a remnant here today. The people of God today. Paul goes on to say, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is, it's of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Basically saying this is obviously an act of God's sovereign grace. God in his secret decrees God in his own knowledge, as the Bible says in Psalm 105, that he does whatever he pleases. God has a people for himself. And he will always have a people for himself. And it doesn't matter how wicked the world gets, or how bad it looks, or that we see the the church dropping off like flies. We must always remember that there's always a godly remnant. Those that know their God, as Daniel 11.32 says, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. In Hosea 4.6, the word of God says, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee, that, thou shalt be, that there shall be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. As it was in Elijah's day, and so it was in Paul's. And this has been the battle since the beginning up until the present. We must be a people that know their God and know ourselves in truth. Isaiah 5.13 says, Therefore my people are gone into captivity. Why? Because they have no knowledge. And their honorable men are famished. And the multitude is dried up with thirst. This gives you an indication of what it looks like in a world or in a country or in a nation that refuses the knowledge of God. This is what happens. This is the byproduct of the prime product of rejection of God's word. When there's a famine in the land. When we are parched because we're not hearing truth, we're not preaching truth, we're not living the truth. This is why we as the church of the living God must never back down from the truth. We wonder why today's church in America seems impotent. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why the lack of power today among professing Christians in America? Do you realize that Jonathan Edwards actually asked the same question in his day? He asked this question. He said, why so little success of the gospel? How few thorough conversions to be observed? How scarce and how seldom? Sounds like our day. Spurgeon lamented the same thing in his day. He said, the state of religion in our country is low. I do not think I've ever preached with less saving results since I was a minister. And this is the case with most others. It is a general complaint. Talk about complaints. Ian Murray in his book, The Forgot Spurgeon, writes on the condition of the church prior to Spurgeon's arrival. He said the church was not lacking in wealth, nor in men, nor in dignity, but it was sadly lacking in unction and power. 
There was a general tendency to forget the difference between human learning and the truth revealed by the Spirit of God. There was no scarcity of eloquence and culture in the pulpits, but there was a marked absence of the kind of preaching that broke men's hearts. Do you hunger for that? Don't you desire for that? Where the church is, is invigorated, it's robust, it's on fire for the things of God, it's brave, it's bold, it's humble, but it's alive, it's living. The body of Christ in action. This is who we are. We're Christians. Christians are alive, joyful, under the power of the living God. Edwards had stated in his day, just prior to the Great Awakening, listen to this. He said, politics divided the people and pleasure absorbed the young. Family discipline was generally neglected and uncontrolled sexual immorality rapidly spreading. The Sabbath evening became the chief to the excess of amusement and entertainment. And the Arminian controversy was raging around him at this time as well. He saw how these customs were defeating all of his labor. And he singled them out and threw all of his soul into the assault against it. He focused all of his attention on the sovereignty of God and free grace. And God began to bring about many conversions. This is where he writes his famous book called Surprising Conversions. The Great Awakening had begun. Edwards and Spurgeon and Ryle all understood the problem and knew the remedy. That men needed God. Men needed God. We need God, the God of the Holy Scriptures. We need God to, to awaken His people again. Without sounding redundant up here, I mean, we have to be in prayer for our people in this day. We have to be driven to a sense of urgency to God and plead with God that he would once again pour out his spirit upon the body of Christ. We must be disturbed at what is going on around us. Wherever we look, wherever we turn, the rampant perversion and the indoctrination of everything that God hates and be willing to confront it. Christians shape culture. They don't hide from it. Remember that. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're the only ones that are enabled by the Spirit of God to do anything in this world that's meaningful. We're the only ones that carry the gospel to a lost and dying world. We have the only answer to man's dilemma, man's sin. Nobody else has the answer. Donald Trump doesn't have the answer. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the answer to men's state before God. Jesus said in Luke 17, 26, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. I'm not preaching a, a, an end times message here, but what I'm saying here is that all this stuff kind of connects the dots. Here when Paul was, was dealing with this present situation as we were dealing with the sovereignty of God and the election of his people with natural Israel and the spiritual Israel, this element here, but also what we're focusing on uh, this morning, our primary target this morning is dealing with, with, with the issues when it seems that all around you uh, people have left God and, and are worshiping idols and are up to their neck in sexual sin and it doesn't seem that anybody really cares. This is what Paul is dealing with when he deals with himself in light of Elijah. He's showing that the fight ultimately is the same in every age. And it's the same today. And Jesus even said in his days, in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the Son of Man. Jesus paralleled his ministry with that of Noah's day. He says, as, and as it is in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. And we know from this verse and those following that Jesus is talking about future judgment. 
But Noah's story is paramount considering the catastrophic judgment that befell the world in his day with the worldwide flood. The magnitude and scale and destruction are immeasurable beyond human calculations. But also, we must remember as well that Noah was a preacher of righteousness and warned many to flee the wrath to come. Noah's ministry does not just embody the greatest of all judgments on mankind, but listen, but also the greatest rejected ministry of all times. Not just pointing to judgment and the judgment to come, Jesus is illustrating his own ministry to that of Noah's, not in the sense that he's talking about, yes, there's a final judgment to come, the judgment that came upon Noah. But what happened to Noah when he preached the word? The whole world didn't believe. It was Noah against the world. It was Elijah against the world. It's Paul against the world. And it is you that are against the world. But Jesus said, fear not, for I have overcome the world. So be encouraged this morning, brothers and sisters. Just remember this. Ultimately, when you find yourself in a situation where you think that everything is just going downhill, going downhill fast, which things are. But understand this in Hebrews 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Guys, there is a cloud of witnesses, right? There are those who thousands of years before us have led the way. We stand on the shoulders of thousands who never compromised, who never backed down. So you know, if you can't find anybody around you to help you along or give you encouragement, just remember there is a whole entire cloud of witnesses rooting you on in heaven that have went before you. And you are no different than them. And the struggles that they faced are no different than the struggles that you face today. Pain is pain, right? By what calculation do we determine whose pain's worse? Pain is pain. Persecution is persecution. Just remember this and let this encourage you this morning that this isn't a, 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 an unusual foreign doctrine to Scripture. This is the life of a Christian. This is the life Paul's talking about. And we know Elijah cried out to God because he thought, man, what a small, I mean, nothing's left. And the same thing here, there is a remnant. God's people are made up of all tribes and nations and tongues. He says in verse five, even so then at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace to know the gospel. Let's know ourselves, know God, and know the gospel must understand that if it's by grace, then it's no longer works. This whole idea that had been really uh, peddled for, for years, uh, this idea that man can somehow, through the law of God, make himself right with God by what he does. And the law of God's always been the instrument which pushes us to Christ as a schoolmaster where we can be justified by faith. John Miller in his book, Powerful Evangelism for the Powerless, writes, I'm convinced that what gave evangelists in the 18th century remarkable power was the Whitfield Wesley confidence in the supreme authority of Christ. By contrast, today, typically, we serve a smaller Christ. We like his role of comforter and sustainer, but we pretty much ignore his royal position as the conquering king. The sad fact is that we are often more aware of human opinion than we are of Christ's claim to have absolute authority over the whole cosmos. The leaders in the Great Awakening had, had extraordinary power in evangelism and renewal. They followed an omnipotent Christ, the divine warrior, and he anointed them with his missionary presence. It was George Whitfield, the mighty preacher of the Great Awakening, was said that his preaching could be heard a mile away. Just think about this for just a moment. God raises up people and uses people and gifts people for his own glory. Whitfield could be heard from a mile away preaching without amplification because God had set him on fire. 
And people came to watch him burn. Whitfield once said, I love those that thunder out the word. The Christian world's in a dead sleep and nothing but a loud voice can awaken them out of it. Those that observed Whitfield's preaching said his voice was like a trumpet, which could be muted or played to its full power. It was excellent in melody and range, and his messages were emphasized with graceful gestures. The voice of George Whitfield also had phenomenal carrying power. One author simply concluded, he preaches like a lion. I believe this is where the Lord is taking us as the body of Christ in the world that we're in today, in our present situation, with the remnant that he has here, that we would trust once a God, trust God once again that he had moved in power. Know this, that even in times of universal apostasy and epidemical degeneracy, God has a number to stand up for and witness to his name and truth, and that the number of them is more than we either imagine or believe. God has ever had and always will have a seed to serve him, which shall be accounted to him for a generation. And although the number of revolters be great, yet the number of the righteous is not small. So what is our divine, what is God's response to us this morning? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged. Look at the scriptures, glean from them. Hear what Paul's saying to us today. Hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us today through his word. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. No matter what happens, no matter what we hear, no matter what we see, remember, the church is always triumphant. Why? Because Christ is victorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, just for everything that you are. Lord, you are our reward. We are eternally grateful, Lord, that we can call you our Father. Lord, bless your people today as we continue into a new week. Lord, I'd ask you to bless them and show them favor, but give them a spirit of boldness for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.